Okay, good morning again. Um, and, uh, and a wonderful blessing to be able to bring this, um, uh, the scriptures to you this morning, and especially on the topic that we're, that we're dealing with is, is quite an incredible topic. Um, we're dealing with what the Bible speaks about, a coming global government system, a system that will, uh, will um, compass all the world. And, um, and it is a system that we should be seeing some form of evidence of it within, within the world today, some move toward some new world structure, a uh, completely different structure to what we're used to. We're used to a, uh, a world with, with, um, with nations, with countries, individual countries. Well, the Bible actually tells us that there will come a time where all these individual countries will give up their sovereignty completely and will give themselves over to a global overarching authority, a global government. Um, the, the series that we're dealing with is specifically dealing with what we refer to as the signs of the times. And this, these are the words that Jesus said. He spoke about signs of the times. And, and these things are really, really important to be able to identify because they are signs, like signs on a road. It's very much the same. You, you want to be preparing yourself if there's a turnoff. You, know, you want to be preparing yourself if there is a destination to reach. There is a sign there to be looking for. These signs aren't there to completely ignore. They're there to be looking for and to see. And the Lord Jesus spoke about it and he said, you know, what I say to you, I say unto all, watch. He wants us to watch, wants all of us to watch for the signs of his coming. The title of the series um, is not really a question, but it is a. But it, it, perhaps it is in your minds uh, and the minds of those that are that are that are watching the the series. But it's the times of the signs, and the claim that that I am making is that I believe we are living in the very time of the signs, and those times have begun with the nation of Israel coming into the land uh, right up until today. The only difference is today there is a incredible convergence of signs. It's not just an isolated one here or there, but a, a convergence of these signs all coming together to show exactly the same thing in the Bible. And that's what's a wonderful blessing to see. So is a global government spoken of in the Bible being prepared before our eyes? And that's the question. Will it be fulfilled even potentially within our lifetime if the Lord tarries? You know, will there be a global government even in our lifetime if the Lord tarries? That's, that's a great question, you know, and a, and a great consideration. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. There's a word that people use today, um, and it's a word to wipe away all active study and research into um, claims that are being made, and it's a word known as conspiracy. Conspiracy. And they love using that word. They call people conspiracy theorists and they use that as a justification to be able to ignore them completely. Um, conspiracy, the word conspiracy simply means with common breath. Conspiracy, okay, conspira. It's, it's with common breath. And this is the claim the scriptures actually put together that there will be a formation of these things all working to the same individual goal. And they like that. They like to refer to those conspiracies. And there are, look, there are some crazy nutcase things out there that are 
really, really difficult to comprehend. But without our own study into them, we have no ability to be able to know whether they're true or false. It's the lazy man's way of being able to disregard the, uh, the things that are being spoken about and suggested. But the Bible speaks about something happening in the last days. It speaks about scoffers coming, that they will ask the question, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? For all things have continued on. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. The Lord there says, well, Peter, Peter writes here saying, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the very beginning, from the beginning of creation. Regarding this, what we're actually finding is that they actually prove the proverb, the proverb in, in, in Proverbs, Proverbs 18, he that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and shame to him. And this is, this is what's being said. This is what's being spoken of people who make these particular claims. And uh, it's really interesting because recently I, I responded to a, a blog article that an individual posted. And he seemed like a very, very smart man. And he's, he, apparently he's popular. I'd never heard of him. Um, but, uh, and he was bringing up this idea about a global government and all that sort of thing. And, it was, um, and he said, this is a myth. You know, this is a myth. This is a conspiracy theory, you know. And I find that quite intriguing considering the amount of people and the amount of evidence that we're going to be seeing that are moving towards that exact same end. So we got four points this morning. Surprise, surprise. And the four points are a covetous origin, the covetous origin of global dominion. The second point will be the covetous desire for global dominion. The third is the covetous renewal of global dominion. And the fourth is the foundation of an everlasting kingdom and leaves us with a, with a, wonderful, um, a wonderful positive aspect to the end of all of this. There seems to be, from what I had seen, there seems to be everything moving in exactly the same direction. And it doesn't really matter whether it's education, religion, the government, science, music, uh, movies, the media, business, society, our culture... Everything seems to be moving. There seems to be a pressing towards a particular given end. And when you look at this, you think, how is it possible for everything to be moving towards the same end? And as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking it's not possible for, for a man to have an idea and then to conspire with all the world through a period of hundreds of years to move the entire world into a particular direction. And, it, and it, you know, it's a wonderful thing about this because without the Bible, we would have no answer to these questions. And it's, the, it's, it's fair enough for people to put these things aside to, to conspiracies that are, that are vain, that have no basis in reality, because they don't see that there is a plan. Now, before I was a Christian, the world made no, no, made no sense to me. It made no sense to me. I actually looked at it and I thought, this world is, is mad. This world is crazy. It wasn't until after I came to the Lord that my eyes were actually open to the truth and the reality of the things that are actually going on in the world. And the Bible lays out so wonderfully how things are playing out. 
And all of a sudden, everything that's going on in the world made perfect sense. It made perfect sense. But it begins with this book. I recognise something really important. No individual man can be moving along these conspiratorial lines on his own strength. It's just not possible. And it's with us, as we read in in Ephesians 6.12, Paul speaks about it and he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, you might, you might decide that you're going to just write that off as a myth. You know, People believe that there's angels or spirits or something behind this. So that's crazy talk. The fact of the matter is it's in the Bible. Okay? That's what it says in the Scriptures. You're going to argue with anybody. I didn't write it. You know, I believe it because it's in the Bible and I believe that the Bible is true. But that's what it says in the Bible. You want to argue with it, you can, you can take it up with God when you see him. But to me, I see the truth of it laid out here. Where did it originate? Where did it come from? So turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll have a look at the beginning of, of this endeavour. This is the first book after the wisdom books that we have. So after Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, first Song of Solomon, and then we have Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14, and it's a famous passage, well known. Once you, once you see it, you'll understand. Verse 12, and we'll read from 12 to 17. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. And consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? Stop there. I've, in looking at this particular text, I've had more than my fair share of debates concerning this passage of the Bible. Um, there's a multitude of people out there who do not want to believe what the Bible means or what it just plainly says. So they reinterpret these things and they, and they go into all these different areas. I've got no interest in wasting precious time in this sermon to try and adjust those things. Okay? Um, I'm not going to be defending that in this sermon. My desire is simply to preach it as it is okay? and to tell what's already in plain sight and to bring out clearly what's already before our eyes. Is that fair enough? I don't want to go into all those ideas. We'll touch on it a little bit, but not not into any great deal of depth. The passage itself is speaking of an entity that resided in heaven, but had since fallen. How art thou fallen from heaven, he says in the the scripture. This entity has a name that's been given to him, and it's the only place in the Bible where we find this name. The name is Lucifer. It's just as unique in the English Bible as it is in the Hebrew Bible. The name is not Morning Star. 
The name is not Daystar. These words are found elsewhere in the Bible and are not uniquely found here. That's an important distinction to make. Okay, If in the Hebrew Bible the word for Lucifer is found only once, it should only be once found within a translation. Not day star or morning star. Both of those words are all found elsewhere in Scripture. It's certainly not found twice in this context. No matter what book you're choosing to read, the name is Lucifer. The proper name in the Hebrew is Hallel. This is really important to understand and recognize. Just as all Hebrew names have a meaning, so too does this name. This name also has a meaning. It means light bearer. Okay, it refers to a light bearer or a, or a bringer of light. Okay, that's, that's the meaning of it. But we don't translate Noah as comforter, do we? When, when, we've, got, when we've got Noah, the, word, the name Noah in the Bible, do we translate it according to its actual meaning? The meaning of Noah is comforter. He shall bring comfort to us. Okay, Methuselah, we don't, trans, we don't have his name in the Oz. His name is, oh, uh, his death shall bring, we'll come and see you today. Or his death shall bring, you know. No, that's the meaning of his name. But we don't refer to him by that. We refer to him by his name. Judah means praise. Jesus means saviour. Paul means small. We don't call them by the interpretation of their names. We call them by their names. We keep proper names as names. So too does the Hebrew Bible. So too should its translation in the English. There's no excuse for translating this name into its meaning. I'm pretty sure that none of you want me to translate to call you by the meaning of your own name. Is that fair enough? Okay. Otherwise, some of you might be in trouble, you know. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's call names as names. The names given to individuals um, are their names and that's exalted. This individual, however, was exalted in... In the, uh, in the scriptures. He was an individual who had, who had incredible amount of praise and Ezekiel 28 brings that out. Um, nevertheless, he was cuffed, cut down from the lofty, self-exalted height that he put himself. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? Why did he fall from heaven? What was the origin of the fall of Lucifer? as he was once known, but is now called Satan. He's no longer called Lucifer. He is now referred to as Satan. He has fallen from heaven, no longer referred to as Lucifer in Scripture. He says in verse 13, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. These are what is known as the five eye wills of Satan. These are the elements of the covetous origin of global dominion. First and foremost, this anointed cherub, as he was referred to in Ezekiel, his first desire is to ascend into heaven. His second is to exalt himself above God. His third is to sit upon the throne of that dominion of God The fourth is to ascend as Christ does above the clouds. And the fifth is to be like the Most High. It's really rare to find such an insight into the heart of an individual. You know, if you want to know what somebody is like, know what their heart's desire is. 
know what their true heart's desire is and consider it that way. It was a commentary on the third chapter of Sun Tzu's Art of War that was written in the 6th century that says, and many of you would know it, it says, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. And this is incredible to see when it comes to Satan. You have now an understanding of his very nature, his absolute desire above all else. And everything that he does fits within that desire. The entire concept of the idea of the ends justify the means, right, is his idea. His end is global authority and global dominion. He wants to rise himself above the stars of God. And his means, whatever is at his disposal. He has no interest, doesn't care whether it's the truth or a lie, doesn't matter whether it's keep alive or murder. He will do everything he can to meet that end and that is exactly what his desire is. And that's incredible because if you look at the history of communism, you find that that's exactly what they use. They say the same thing. The left say the same thing. The ends justify the means. So if the end they believe is good, it doesn't matter what the means are. Evil or good makes no difference to them. Uh, The ends justify them. It's his desire to conquer the world and in doing so, he, well, Paul writes about it. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it was in keeping brethren divided. His desire was to keep brethren divided. And Satan did an effective work at keeping brethren divided. In the context of his coveting of global dominion, it's through division that he conquers the, the, the world. Covetous origin of global dominion is found in this one who deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. That's the inspiration behind this endeavour and it should not surprise us then that if that is the inspiration, that is if the inspiration behind this endeavour is a spiritual one, then we need to be considering the aspect of this desire for global dominion. Is there a spiritual element behind it? Is there, is there anything behind the scenes that actually bring this together? This common effort is a demonic one. His desire is to ascend into heaven, to exalt his throne above the stars of God, to sit upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north, to ascend above the heights of the clouds and to be like the most high. That's his desire. And it's a universal desire that he has. It's really incredible because... It demonstrates itself in organisations that are spiritually led. And these are what are known as secret organisations. Secret organisations. They don't openly tell you what they're about. Is there a spiritual element within these organisations? Or are they simply politically motivated? Is it, is it greed? Is it just politics? Is it power? Or is there a spiritual element behind them? Incredible quote by President Woodrow Wilson in 1913 in uh, the new freedom that he, that he wrote, a passage in the Federal Reserve Act of Woodrow Wilson, the new freedom. He published, he says this, Since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the US in the field of commerce and manufacturing are afraid of somebody, are afraid of something. 
They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive that they had better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. That's incredible coming from the President of the United States in 1913. Incredibly, John F. Kennedy also spoke of the danger of secret societies. He mentions about this. He was speaking to the press conference and he was referring to a global political system that has behind it a complete secret nature nature to it. And this is, this is him speaking. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. This is the nature of, of the communist system as a completely secret society that undermines the culture first. Uh, Leon Skusen wrote, uh, wrote a book many years ago in the 1940s um, called The Naked Communist, an incredible book, and I've mentioned, to you, I mentioned it once before. Within that book are 48 goals, 48 target efforts of the communist system to undermine Western democracy. Um, of those 48, 46 of them have been fulfilled. And I, and I went through them once before and I don't have time to go through them again. There is a spiritual element, however, behind all of these, just as there was in the days of the Second World War. Adolf Hitler had a, a swastika behind on his, on his arm. You recognise that? You see that there? There is a spiritual element behind it. People worshipped it, yet it was also found in the ancient Sanskrit culture. You can see it there. You can see it also in an Indonesian Hindu temple, there. You can see it again in ancient Persian mythology, up there. This is a symbol that actually defines something and, and ascribes something. This isn't just the SS, as we, as we commonly refer to it as. There is an ancient spiritual element to this and anybody who's dug deep into Hitler's um, efforts you recognize he was pagan to the core with Helena's secret doctrine by his side he utilized that together with Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, book on on um, can't remember something to power can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but he used those he, he read Nietzsche speaking about the superman and he believed that he was it there is a spiritual element behind it. 
But not only that, there are also other secret societies. Freemasonry is one of the most all-compassing um, societies in the world and it's seen on the surface as a benevolent institution. We have hospitals with Freemasons doing the work within them. We have all of that behind them. Yet there is a dark, secret, spiritual element underneath them. Some of you might recognise this individual. His name is Alistair Crowley. He's recognised as the father of modern Satanism and he was a 33rd degree Mason. In 1900, before he started his own cult in 1912, you can see the, the symbols. This is him again with his, with his Freemasons uniform. It's a bit pixelated, sorry. Was the, I should have gotten a better one. Albert Pike is known as the great commander of the Scottish Rite from 1859 to 1891. He's known as the greatest Freemason of all time. He's known as the, um, he also worshipped Satan and claimed Lucifer is God. This is a statue commemorating him as a, um, as a, as a, as a, uh, as a commander also within, um, within the military. He wrote, Thus the doctrine of Satanism is heresy and the true and philosophical religion is Lucifer, God of light and God of good is struggling for humanity against Adonai, Jesus, the God of darkness and evil. He completely twists it. He says here, yes, Lucifer is God and the true and pure religion is the belief in Lucifer. It's an incredible reality of these are individuals who are leading these organisations, organisations that are founded on a spiritual, satanic basis. Not Christianity. Do you notice why not Christianity? Why aren't the governing elites around the world founded in Christianity? Because that's not their desire. Alice A. Bailey was a reigning queen of the New Age movement until her death. She wrote over 20 books with the help of her spirit guide, Tibetan master Joel Kool. She spoke of Freemasonry and she said, It is a far more occult organisation than can be realised and it is intended to be the training school for the coming advanced occultists. What we find also added to these secret societies are the Illuminati, founded in Bavaria in 1776. There you have the seal of the United States, found on the dollar. I've got, I've got a couple of them up here. I should have brought them down to show, show them to you. But you see at the top there, the all-seeing eye. You see the command there, Novus Order Seclorum, which is basically a desire for the new world order. A new world order. That's on their dollar bill. It's incredible to see this. This is in the very public view of what we would think on the surface is purely secular and purely political. On top of that, you have the Skull and Bones, another organisation that was created in Yale College and people that were members of this included a number of presidents. You have Taft there and you have the two Bush, father and son, both of them members of Skull and Bones. The most effective organisation, however, working in the world in an order of essentially a father with its trinity of offshoots is what's known as the Council on Foreign Relations. It was created in 1921 as their head. Behind that is the Bilderbergers. The Bilderberg Group is a, is a group that has started forming in 1954 in, in a place called Bilderberg, that's what they're called, they are a completely secret society of world leaders 
and individuals who meet in secret. Now, usually every year there is a big thing on the news about the Bilderbergers coming together. Seen anything in the last two years? Last two years we haven't heard a thing. They've been they've silenced the media so effectively that you don't even hear a thing of it anywhere. Now their their goal and their aim is purely economic. That's their main thrust. The Club of Rome was founded in 1968 dealing with the spiritual element of things. And they deal with a number of these things as well where they start putting things together. They're known as the Club of Rome. The Trilateral Commission was founded by David Rockefeller in 1973 and it deals mostly with the political. And this is, again, directly off their website. David Rockefeller is an incredible individual. He founded, like I said, the Trilateral Commission and this is what he said uh, in 1991. He said, We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subject to the bright lights of, public, of publicity during those years. But the work is now much more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supernatural, supernational, supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national autodetermination practiced in past centuries. And this is what, that's what he writes in 1991. So we see these particular efforts that are going on within the world and we wonder how deeply do they actually ingrain themselves in the society? How deeply does the spiritual element behind these national and supranational powers actually work? Is there a deep spiritual element to it? Oh, we discover something in the United Nations. The United Nations, this is the United Nations prayer room. The United Nations prayer room was set up in the early 1950s. Dag... Hammar Skold, sounds Dutch, is the second Secretary General of the United Nations. He spearheaded a campaign to revamp a prayer room in the UN, in the New York UN headquarters. He decided that the members of the body of the United Nations were part of a numerous religious backgrounds and that would be in conflict to try and create a prayer room that, was a, that wouldn't be accommodating to all. So his attempt to resolve this was by appeasing rather than to appeasing the Lord. He writes about it and he says, this is a six-ton monolith in the middle of the room. And he says, but the stone in the middle of the room has more to tell us. We may see it as an altar, empty, not because there is no God, not because it is an altar to an unknown God, but because it is dedicated to the God whom man worships under many names and in many forms. Tex Mars speaks about the occultic nature of the prayer room. And he says, perhaps the best way to comprehend what the all-seeing eye represents is to examine the architecture of the meditation room of the United Nations building in New York. The meditation room is shaped as a pyramid without a capstone. It's got this trapezoidal shape to it. A pyramid without a, cap without a capstone. Inside the room is dimly lit but coming from the ceiling is a narrow but concentrated pinpoint beam of light which radiates down to a bleak stone altar. On the wall straight ahead is a breathtaking modernistic mural that is dynamically endowed with occult symbolism, 
containing 27 triangles in various configurations, a mixture of black and white and coloured background, and a snake-like vertical line in the centre. Vertical line. At the centre is the all-seeing eye, which grips the millions of annual visitors to the United Nations with a stark beckoning image of suspicion and omnipresence. Interesting, isn't it? These are some of the things that we see behind the powers that be today. Why is there a spiritual element to it? Because the original design for global dominion is of the devil. It's his original plan. And that is the element that presses the entire world towards his end goal. The second point this morning is a covetous desire for global dominion. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. An incredible passage we find in the, in the scriptures here and we discover that the desire for a global government is not new. And it had its origin, spiritual origin in Satan, but it's, but it's manifested here really clearly with man in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was, filled, was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the whole earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Fools we would be if we had not ever thought that there was that the desire for a global dominion is a new one. It's not a new one, it's an ancient one. It's an ancient desire and it finds itself there clearly represented in Genesis chapter 11. The origin of the tongues of the world, the origin of the languages of the world is also found there in Genesis chapter 11. It's God that creates language. There was at that time one proto-language. It was one overarching language that the entire world spoke at that time. Now the entire world was located in a given area, recognise that building themselves a tower that they be not scattered abroad. Within this proto-language, we discover something really interesting. In Professor John McWhorter's um, The Story of Human Language, he's got a 36-part lecture series within that. He actually speaks about the three main languages to which all the languages of the world can find their origin in the Indo-European the Sino-Tibetan 
and the Afro-Asiatic, they all come together, he believes, in one proto-language. He believes that all the languages of the world can be traced to one language. This is a secular individual. He has no interest in Christianity or the Bible. But yet he believes exactly what the Bible teaches. And that is that all the languages of the world were originally one. And it's really interesting because when we look at this, when we see that, that it is this very effort, this confounding of the languages to all the world that has scattered the people, taking away the opportunity for them to build a, an empire for man, a global dominating um, authority over mankind back then. The only thing that prevented it perfectly from happening is language. I find that really interesting. I find that interesting because since then, when you look at the Assyrian Empire and its desire to dominate, and it did dominate a large part of the world, what did it do? It imposed the Chaldean language upon all the people that they were actually governing over, 120-odd provinces that were there. The Babylonian Empire did exactly the same thing. They brought in the Chaldean Aramaic of the Babylonians again to employ that over the entire world that they governed. Interestingly enough as well, Alexander the Great, when he came in as that third empire <coughs> and he ruled over the known world at the time, what did he do? Instituted the Koine Greek the Koine Greek, he Hellenized the entire nations that were around him. And out of that, we have the New Testament of the Bible, originally written in the Koine Greek that was imposed by Alexander the Great. And he wasn't the last. The fourth empire that came through dominated as the Roman Empire. This is the latter part of the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire also forced one language. You remember the language? Latin. The Latin language was imposed to be able to properly govern and properly rule over a people. What is incredible about all this is that all of them have attempted to bridge the, 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 the communication barrier by instituting a global language. And in those days, it was a global language if those areas was considered the entire world. But it's not until today, it's not until today that can be claimed that there is indeed a true global language. The English language was born into complete obscurity in the 5th century AD. And yet it was the English language that succeeded in ways like no other language has succeeded. It continually was threatened of extinction, especially when William the Conqueror came in and imposed basically 300 years of French rule on the, on the British people that were there. And uh, 300 years of French, you know, and yet the English language did an incredible job at not just going away. It didn't go away at all. It absorbed the French language into its language. And that's exactly what it did. English has grown by absorbing the languages of other nations, Latin, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Dutch, Scandinavian, Japanese, Arabic, Portuguese, Sanskrit, Russian, Maori, Hindi, Hebrew, Persian, Malay, Urdu, Irish, Afrikaans, Yiddish, Turkish, Chinese, Norwegian, Zulu and Swahili. And that's only 10, not even 10% of the 350 languages that were swallowed up by English. I love what James Nichols writes. He said, English doesn't borrow from other languages. 
English follows other languages down dark alleys, knocks them over and goes through their pockets for loose grammar. (laughs) So perfectly represented with what the English language has done over the years. Incredible. One of the least spoken signs of the times is that of a common language. It's one of the least spoken signs of the times. It held the effort, it withheld the effort towards global dominion. And now, without the English language, well, Greta Thunberg would still be in school. The point is that there's long been a covetous desire for global dominion. It's not now or just now. It began long, long, long ago, but there was one thing that hindered it, and that was language. It was the one thing that God used to prevent the, the, uh, the, the effort of mankind and it indeed prevented the effort of mankind. Today, the English language is spoken all over the world and it is taught as a second language in every single school around the world. I ask you a question. Are we primed? Are we primed for this particular sign to be fulfilled within this time? Are we living in the time of this sign, the potential fulfilment of this sign. Third point this morning is the covetous renewal of global dominion. Revelation chapter 13, we'll be spending the rest of our time there, so turn there with me. Revelation chapter 13. We'll look at Daniel as we, as we conclude in the last point. But Revelation chapter 13 will give us a really great understanding of this global dominion that will be in these particular days. In verse 7, the text there says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and all tongues and all nations. It's, it's here. It's here in Revelation. It's here in Revelation. You can go back to the book of Daniel as well, but it's majority here in the book of Revelation where it speaks clearly about a global dominion being formed. This is an individual who had power over all kindreds, all tongues and all nations. This is the one that uh, biblical pastors had been able to see was a picture of a revived Roman Empire. This is the coming up of this empire that Daniel spoke about in his writings in chapter 7 of Daniel. The latter half of the verse, it says, power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. The word all in this context means all, means all. All kindreds refers to all races of people. The Bible teaches that the people groups we refer to as races were people of a kind were people of a kind. They were people of an original family grouping. And it was in accord with these family groupings that the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 was compiled. And we believe that it's these family groupings that actually had those languages that were given them at that particular time. It seems historically clear that it was these kindreds um, that were part of that division that we see in Genesis chapter 11. And tongues, it says, well, these are the known language groups to which the king had his dominion. 
The king had power over all kindreds, tongues and nations. Therefore, it's logical that this is a global dominion. Now, that doesn't mean that every single... When we spoke about it before with regards to the English language, we're referring to the form of communication, not that the English language is going to be the primary language of all these nations. Okay, That's not what the text tells us. The text tells us that it was over all kindreds, tongues and nations. The English language will obviously form some sort of a part of that in order to facilitate this bringing together of global dominion. But it's in these latter verses, the, last, the, la, the, the verses from verse 16 to 17, where John writes, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. This is a passage that we refer to as the, the mark of the beast, the, the giving out of the mark of the beast. And again, the context of the passage, all means all. Okay, we're going to look a lot. We're not going to get into this at this sermon. We're going to look at that in the next sermon when we speak about a global currency. But at the moment, it's clear that Revelation 13 has the identity and the nationality of all all the people of the earth has an, uh, an authority over all the economic castes of the people of the earth. So there is a power over all the people of the earth. There is also a power over the economic abilities of all the people of the earth in this particular two verses. Okay, This has never happened in history before. It's never happened in history before. So the question is, is... is if this is that sort of a power, then it is a diverse power from all the, the powers and the authorities that were before. And that's exactly what Daniel speaks about. He says that this kingdom is diverse from all the others and exceeding dreadful. But how far back can we go in modern history? Is, uh, this is James, James Warburg. James Warburg was, um, was a banker. Um, and he asked this question, we shall have, or he doesn't make a question, he says, we shall have world government whether we like it or not. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by conquest or consent. It was a statement he made before Congress in the United States on the February the 7th, 1950. Strobe Talbot is another one. He says, in the next century, that's this century, nations as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognise a single global authority. National sovereignty wasn't such a great idea after all, he believes. David Rockefeller, remember him? Well, he says this. Some even believe, this is in his own memoirs, some even believe that we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterising my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that is the charge, I stand guilty and am proud of it. It's in his memoirs in 2003, page 406. David Rockefeller has gone to be with his Lord. He's no longer with us. Incredible idea is the, this idea of a complete governing authority. Now, I mean, has anybody ever said anything about that? I mean, do you hear anybody talking about something like a new world order? You know, we see that within these, these, these 
even even within the, the, the currency of the United States? Well, yes, there has been. A new world order is something that's been spoken about for quite some time. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. There's a need for a new world order, but it has different characteristics in different parts of, of the world. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. A world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. It's about the future of Europe and a new world order. After 1989, President Bush kept said, and it was a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. And the hope that each of us has to build a new world order. The pieces are in flux. Soon they will settle again. Before they do, let us reorder this world around us. So that the problem of the Bush presidency will be the emergence of a new international order. Within the next four years, we will see the emergence of a new international the order. The beginning of a new international order. But today, with Asia already outproducing Europe, India and China are clearly becoming part of our new order. So, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, a new world is emerging. It is a new world order with significantly different and radically new challenges. I think its task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. It's a great opportunity. It isn't such a crisis. That this crisis, in the way that has developed, will require some kind of a world governance. Good evening, everybody. President Obama and British Prime Minister Gordon today calling for a new world order to tackle our global economic crisis. And the president outlined his vision of a new world order in which the U.S. would participate fully. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, uh, world order that I think all of us would like to see. So I see a world order in the future with a multipolar uh, world order. I think a new world order is emerging and with it the foundations of a new and progressive era of international cooperation. We have resolved that from today we will together manage the process of globalization to secure responsibility from all and fairness to all. And one of the ways that will drive the change is through global governance and global agreements. But in a globalized economy, we are going to have to take global responsibilities. And there going to, is going to have to be some semblance of global governance. Never before has a new world order had to be assembled from so many different perceptions or on so global a scale. Nor has any previous order had to combine the attributes of the historic balance of power system with global democratic opinion and the exploding technology of the contemporary period. There also exists an extraordinary opportunity to form for the first time in history a truly global society.
well, during the during the conflict with Saddam Hussein, which he handled so superbly in in a short term sense, but he kept talking about a new world order. Uh, and 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 then President Bush, at the end of that of that war, promised he would give four graduation addresses, four commencement addresses, describing that new world order and what America's role was going to be in it. it turned out he gave one of those addresses and canceled the other three and talked about something else. That's what because they weren't ready yet. That in fact we're all going to have to give up a little bit of our sovereignty in order to make the world work. And I strongly believe India will be a central actor in the new world order. And this present window of opportunity during which a truly peaceful and interdependent world order might be built will not be here for open for too long. Already there are powerful forces at work that threaten to destroy all of our hopes and efforts to erect an enduring structure of global cooperation. Are you optimistic a global system can happen it, from what it, we've heard so far? It, it, it could happen and in fact it's in the work. Out of it came a new Europe, a new world order, a new consensus as to how life should and could be lived. The decade of Today, the 1990s was meant to have been one in which a new international order, free of the bipolar rivalry of earlier days, was to have been established. ...of the 21st Australia century, that out of what is, will be seen as the greatest restructuring of the global economy, perhaps one even greater than at the time of the Industrial Revolution, a new world order was created. The big challenges we face nationally are now the big challenges we face globally, which means our policy responses must be increasingly global. You see this, this plan all over the world, and one of the things that you might have picked up in there, speaking about a crisis and how that, that becomes an opportunity. Kissinger mentioned that. He says, during this crisis is an opportunity to create a new world order. So the arguments are always the same and they go along the lines of this is a global problem and it needs a global solution. And you can put whatever you'd like behind that as far as what the problem is. Is it, is it, the, uh, is it climate change, according to their view, global warming? Global warming, it's global warming. What about the global financial crisis? What about a global pandemic? And we'll speak about that in, a, in, a, in another sermon because it's an interesting one to be able to see how this particular pandemic is actually driving such a tremendous force all over the world to actually form a global government or a global government system directly as a result of this, this virus. Just as, this is just a hint. Here you have Gordon Brown calls for a new global government to fight uh, the impact of COVID-19. So just gives you one hint of that, and we're actually seeing a lot of that come to pass today. Our rights are being taken away from us. All those things are being imposed upon us. These powers that are being now given arbitrarily to government, which they refer to as executive powers, they don't take back very quickly. They never have historically. They keep them. They keep them. So the question that we have is the same one. Are we in the process of actually seeing a global government come to pass within these times. There's some evidence there that, that, that's worth considering because the scriptures themselves find themselves as true in so many ways. Last point this morning, the foundation of an everlasting 
kingdom. Daniel chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Wonderful passage and, uh, and wonderful to be encouraged by. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Take our text from there and Daniel says this. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known unto the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain and the interpretation sure. The interpretation sure. There is an, indeed nothing vague about the interpretation of the dream given to the king. The interpretation is sure. God has given to us signs of the times that we might know and recognize the nearness of the hour. But with it, he's also given to us a good end. And this is distinct from all the ends that the world sees. We see a good end in scripture. We see that these things that are coming to pass before our eyes are a, a good end. And one of the things that really bothered me when I was a teenager growing up and, and this, this teaching about evolution was, was understanding that if we came from nothing and then we go to nothing, this deep shadow really um, was cast over my heart. I, I found myself it's just such a depressing consideration. With respect to it, and if we're looking at it on a natural perspective, on a natural perspective, there's no reason for us to be able to think that there is any continuation for man. The scientists have told us we came into the world through a big bang. Um, there's going to be a big crunch in the end, and that means that all of you know everything that we see that's in existence today is going to cease to exist, right? And if that doesn't really get you upset or, or sad about it, even though it's beyond your own lifetime, well, you can consider something a little bit closer. And that is that the sun is going to continue to burn itself out. And eventually it'll burn itself out. A few million years will go by and this galaxy will also cease to exist. Certainly this planet, which is quite close to the sun, because the sun represents a star like all the other stars. They burn themselves out. Again, this is a deep foreboding. This is not a good end of the world here, you know. And it depressed me no end because just the concept, the idea that there is, no, there is an end to man that is um, as the end of the world. So this isn't just a doctrine that's found in the Bible. Matter of fact, it's a doctrine that's put forward by people time and time and time again. One of the things that we actually discover, it's even found in our entertainments. You know, They do all of that. They speak about rising ocean levels to flood the entire world due to global warming. Global temperature increases, polar bears dying. The big, there's an interesting passage in um, uh, interesting magazines. Here we've got the flood. But they speak about those, you know, the, the heat waves and the falling ice and... 
and and you know polar bears going into extinction and all that sort of thing. But it's interesting that these ideas have been around forever. Time magazine spoke about the coming big freeze, and then they speak about how to survive a coming ice age in 1977. But here we have in 2006 global warming now, and now you've got them all together here: the big freeze, global warming. charged for, um, for, for saying, you know, well, you're all doom and gloom. Well, I don't know what everyone's getting entertained by, you know. They're getting entertained by gloom and doom. They're getting entertained by the end of the world, but there's no good end for their entertainments, you know, and they continue to bring up these, these things and people flock to the cinemas to see these things. Um, they speak about no good end, but the Bible teaches of a glorious end. It teaches of a glorious end. And that glorious end is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The glorious end is found in him. He is our hope and he is our joy. If the Bible, contrary to all the ideas and the doctrines that are found within the world today, if the Bible is true, and I absolutely with all my heart believe that it is, and that's just not a vain saying, I believe it because I've tested it, I've tried it, I've compared what the Bible teaches to what is happening in the world and to the nature of people within the world and I've found it so perfectly faithful, I cannot doubt it, not in any way. So if the Bible is true with respect to the, time, the signs of the times and we perhaps are living in the time of the signs, then the Bible is true with respect to the end. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and it shall stand forever. The great God hath made known to you what shall come to pass hereafter and the scriptures are certain and the interpretation of those are sure. The Lord is true with regards to the word of the living God. There will be a time when all the wickedness, all the evil of this world all the wickedness in high places is going to be done away. And what excites me about this is that the time is close. And it does excite me because I know the Bible teaches with respect to the church that the church will not go through the wrath of, of God. The church is not appointed to wrath, the Bible says. The Bible speaks about the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be suffering the judgments of Jesus Christ. And the first opening of that first seal is the seal judgments in Revelation. And that's not for the church. The church will be taken up. The church will escape. My burden and my prayer and my hope is that anybody who's listening to this would hear the message of the word of God, that they would see that we are living in the times of the signs and they would hasten to escape this city of destruction. Something that Christians spoke about in... In, um, in, in, 
in his um, in his writings, you know, to to escape what's going to be coming upon this world. And we have that opportunity. We have that opportunity. We know that we will, but the question is whether or not we are willing to share the gospel, to share the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ with other people that they might. The time is coming short. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, dear Lord, for your hand upon us. I pray, dear Lord, for your work within us. I pray, dear Father, that you would govern and that you would do your work and you you would continue to do your work in our hearts, that you would encourage us with the wonderful truth of the Bible and that in every way, dear Lord, we might be blessed. And if there are, dear Lord, people who are fearful, who have heard this message or, or watched this sermon, I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would stir them up, that you'd stir up their hearts, that they may turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may believe the gospel of Christ and that they may be saved. I pray, dear Lord, because the time is short. I ask you, dear Father, watch over us and let your name be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.